Muslims.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious that you're so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. And no not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Hello. Um, good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, good evening. If you're in India or Hong Kong or wherever, uh, welcome to Free Association. I know we've got people listening all over the world, um, but I'm in the UK and it's 4 p.m. over here, so or just after two, two or three minutes after, which means it's 11 o'clock on the east coast in the states. Uh, my name's Dennis. And I do this free association thing once a week at the moment, um, partly because I'm working. Yeah, mainly because I'm working. Actually, if I wasn't working, I'd probably be doing it twice a week. There is a possibility that I might grab the slot after this hour. Um, 
at some point and start doing a, a two-hour show after the one-hour show. Well, I haven't made my mind up yet. But uh, the only time I can do anything is the weekend at the moment. So the logistics of doing stuff during the week is just impossible for me while I'm doing this job because I keep, just keep falling asleep. I'm endlessly falling asleep. Within about 15 minutes of getting home, put my my head down on the side of the sofa, sleep, sleep, sleep for an hour, wake up, have something to eat, organise myself, jump in the bath, whatever I need to do. But that hour, that hour sleep is totally is precious. It's absolutely precious. So I don't want to disrupt it. If that's my routine, I have to go with the routine for the time being. Um, I'm assuming you can hear me. Just give me a thumbs up in the chat room if you can hear me. I know Mitzi's in there. Uh, Wally's in there. And May Street's in there. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, May Street. So, I've, I've got an hour. Um, I was debating what to do because uh, there's still some Ukraine updates that I might play at some point later in the show. But I've got a piece of uh, an interview with Nikola Tesla that I've uh, that I've borrowed from YouTube, uh, and that's what I was listening to this afternoon. When my when my head goes into radio mode, I kind of look for material that it's got some kind of philosophical basis to it, and this this has got that. So I think I'm going to play about 20 minutes of this, and then I'm going to ram- ramble on for a bit. And I'm going to play about 20 minutes of uh, Alexander Mercurius talking about Ukraine. Uh, it could change in the in the 20 minutes of Tesla. It could change, but that's what it's looking like at the moment. Um, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, an hour is not a long time. So, I, I want to get cracking with it and just see what we can fit in. Try and get as much as much into the show and as much into the archives as we can. Um, so let me set this up, share my screen properly. So here we go, this is a piece called Everything is Light. Everything is the Light, an interview with Nikola Tesla. Part of this interview is dedicated to Tesla's critics on Einstein's theory of relativity that discards the ether as energy. Journalist, Mr. Tesla, you have gained the glory of the men who got involved in the cosmic process. Who are you, Mr. Tesla? Tesla. It is the right question, Mr. Smith, and I will try to give you the right answer to it. Journalist. Journalist. Mr. Tesla. Some say you are from the country of Croatia, from the area called Laika, where together with the people are growing trees, rocks, and starry sky. They say that your home village is named after the mountain flowers, and that the house you were born in is next to the forest and the church. Tesla, really, all it true. I'm proud of my Serbian origin and my Croatian homeland. Journalist, 
Futurists say that the 20-year-old village is named born in the head of Nikola Tesla, and that the house you were born in they celebrate Congress Day, a magnetic church. field, and sing hymns Tesla. to inductions religion. Their creator was called the hunter who caught the light in his net from the depths of earth, and the warrior who captured fire from heaven. Father of alternating current will make the physics and chemistry dominate half of the world. Industry will proclaim him as their supreme saint. A banker for the largest benefactors. In the laboratory of Nikola Tesla, for the first time, is broken atom. There is created a weapon that causes earthquake vibrations. There are discovered black cosmic rays follow the future. Because they had been taught a great secret that Empedocles' elements can be watered with the light forces from the ethers. Tesla. Yes. These are some of the most important discoveries. I am a feared man. I have not accomplished the greatest thing I could. Journalist. What is that, Mr. Tesla? Tesla. I wanted to illuminate the whole earth. There is enough electricity to become a second sun. Light would appear around the equator as the ring around Saturn. Mankind is not ready for the great and good. In Colorado Springs, I soak the earth by electricity. Also, we can water the other energies, Light would appear around the such as positive metal energy. They are in the music of Bach or Mozart. Mankind is not ready for the great or in the verses of great poets. In Colorado Springs, I soak the earth by electricity. In the earth's interior, there are also we can water the other energies, peace and love. Their expressions are like a flower that grows from the earth. The food we get out of her and everything that makes man's homeland. I've spent years looking for the way that this energy could influence people. The beauty and scent of roses can be used as medicine, and the sun raises food. Journalists, what are these things? Tesla, one issue is food. What a stellar and terrestrial energy to feed the hungry on earth. With what wine watered all thirsty? so they can get cheer in their hearts and understand that they are gods. Another thing is to destroy the power of evil and suffering in which man's life passes. They sometimes occur in the epidemic of the depths of space. In this century, the disease had spread from earth to the universe. All right, let's stop that there because the volume's a little bit low on it, but I wanted to get at least part of it in because I want to, I want to, I've just posted it in the chat room. So if anybody wants to listen later on, you can do that. Um, I wanted to get at least part of it in and that's, that's the part that I wanted to get in. Essentially, there's a little bit later on, but I can, we can work around that. That's fine. So the, 
the idea that that there's electricity or there's some kind of universal energy is a is a common theme amongst um, complementary health systems, amongst amongst religions, amongst philosophical um, structures or whatever around the world. There's a lot of places where universal life energy or vital force is talked about. Um, there's a there's a tradition. The, the Chinese traditions have got this in it. Um, chiropractic's got the same same thing with different language in it. Uh, different, slightly different con- social constructs and cultural constructs around it, but it's the same. It's the same energy. It's the same vital force. And I'm I'm pretty sure Tesla's talking about the same thing. So when people talk about Tesla energy, I just think Reiki. I just think Tai Chi. I just think um, Chi, yeah. Chi or Ki or Prana. The energy that comes in and out with the breath, essentially. Not the breath, but the energy that comes in and out with it. So it's, it's difficult to describe, but uh, if I was describing it, I would say it's a... Tesla describes it as, a, as a, the ether, the etheric field. So ultimately, you're a goldfish in a in a goldfish bowl, and you don't realise you're surrounded by water because it's just there. And that's the way I think of it. So any any movement is a movement within the ether. Any physical movement of my body is a movement within the ether. My body is part of the ether. It's a physical version of the ether. But there's a there's a boundary around it so it looks like it's separate, but actually it's not separate, it's just a different form. And uh yeah. I just think of it as Reiki, as uh, as Chi. So I don't know if Tesla if the Tesla energy is a little bit more physical than than Reiki is, but Reiki is quite physical sometimes. It can it can have a, a big impact, and uh, it can have a big physical impact. So I think that, I think it's the same. The idea is that the idea is pretty much the same. So I just use the principles of visualization. He, he goes on later on in this interview to talk about visualization as a key part of what he does. He he was visualizing. Uh, solutions to his problems. He was using his dream state to find solutions to his problems in equations and mathematical structures or whatever it was he was working with. So, to me, that means that he's, he's accessing a universal consciousness of some sort that already knows the answer. And that's how he was able to do what he was doing. So, it sounds... He also talks about um, having access to more sensory perception than other people, having an extra sense. And uh, it sounds either like he's clairvoyant or he's uh, some kind of synesthete. So he's got kind of colours and sounds merging together and uh, access to, to extra levels of perception. 
which makes sense to me. If it's clairvoyant, he's going to be picking up on messages from the universe. That's what clairvoyants do, ultimately. So, if Tesla's a clairvoyant, that means that I've got a fair and bold amount in common with it. And I, I could access the same the same place. There's no reason why I can't access the same place. So, I think I'm going to put my put my attention on doing that at some point soon and see if I can come up with an exercise or two and just see if I can access uh, the same place that Tesla was accessing to get his to, to manifest his ideas so I'm not I'm not sure how it works exactly. I'm not sure how zero point, accessing zero point energy works. So I probably need to come up with a model of some sort. But the the models that I use for for my healing work are, are pretty good. So I, that's earth, water, air, and fire. Four elements is the way that my heat, the healing system that I'm initiated into works. And that's a that's a good enough model for most things. Uh, I know the Chinese use five elements, but four works, and so does three. It's a classification system as much as anything. It's not changing the energy that you're working with. It's just classifying it in slightly different ways. So the thing, the thing itself doesn't change. It's just the way that you approach it from a from a, a, a cultural structure point of view changes. So all of these things are basically the same. Basically the same. This, there's some kind of there's some kind of graphical user interface involved in accessing these things. In the same way that you would use use Windows or use a Mac or use your phone or whatever. Certain icons, certain certain divisions of of structural divisions work in particular ways and um, how the culture allocates those things is is Dependent on the culture, obviously, but but the energy itself is still there in the background. Whether it's whether it's divided into three, four, or five, it's still the same energy. It's got, it's got to be the same thing ultimately, because uh, there is only there is only one universal energy by definition. So it can't be it can't be cultural because it's universal energy. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what I want to say about that. And uh, yeah, let's let's move on to to the Ukraine piece and see see what Alexander Mercurius has got to say. We shall listen to a little bit of of a forty-five minute update that he did. Uh, so let's try that. That's a different one to the one I was going to use, but it's about the right length, so let's just do that. Right, this is Alexander Mercurius and Alexander Christofuru on the Duran last night talking about um, the European Union um, and their, their relationship with the uh, you know, Pretty, yeah, right, pretty far right. Um, there we go. 
So we'll do about 20 minutes of this and then I'll, I'll gibber on a little bit more. <laughs> I'll have something else to say. War, the war on the ground, the media war. We were discussing before the video some of our thoughts on the media war and uh, just give an overall kind of uh, synopsis as to where, where we are with everything. So where do you want to start? You want to start with uh, NATO or, or elsewhere? Right, well, I think we should start with NATO because NATO is the key. It was the key event that took place or perhaps didn't take place. But in order to understand that, we, we need to understand the context in which that summit meeting in NATO the NATO summit meeting has taken place because and what is clear to me what is absolutely clear to me is that events have not shaped out as the NATO leadership as the western leadership had anticipated and then in a position different from the one that they expected to be in at the end of February now I'm not saying that off the top of my head I've actually read articles in the Financial Times and in Reuters and in other places, we say as much. The assumption was, as we've discussed many times uh, in various programmes and as we discussed at the time, that when they rolled out the sanctions against the Russian central bank, that that would precipitate a massive economic crisis in Russia, that there would be enormous pressure on the Kremlin, that the military operation would be scaled down, and there would be a political crisis causing Putin to leave. It hasn't turned out that way. Things have proved quite otherwise. The ruble continues to strengthen. It's now, I think, at its strongest point since January. Uh, the Russian economy looks stable. It's clearly going to face a serious recession. But the Russian Prime Minister, Mishutsin, spoke, uh, gave a, 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 an address to the Russian government, in which he said that you know, he, he, there would be a period of stress within the economy of about six, six months to a year, and then all the various import substitution programs, the turnaround in the consumer goods production, all of those things would start to kick in. So there isn't that economic crash in Russia. There isn't that total economic breakdown that they expected. Also, despite all the propaganda we've been hearing, the military situation on the ground is turning increasingly bad from their point of view. Uh, earlier today, there was a I got a report that Mariupol is now 98% under Russian control. Ukrainians are bottled up in two factories, basically, the Azov-style works and the Ilyich works, and both of them are born. In addition, there's been this extremely serious advance by the Russians from south, from Izium towards Korsk, which is now becoming the centre, if you like, of the pocket, the Ukrainian pocket. The Ukrainian forces seem to be gradually consolidating there. And I have to say, it increasingly looks like they're going to make their last stand there, at least the forces, I should stress, in Donbass. And in the meantime, it's clear that Ukraine has run out of fuel for its military and is running out of armoured vehicles. Now, the Russians claim that they've destroyed 2,000 out of um, Ukraine's pre-war armoured vehicle free fleet of 2,500. So you're starting to see Ukrainian troops moving around the country. They can't, they're, they're, they're short of fuel. 
the short of armored vehicles. They're having to do this in civilian, vehicle, in, in, in civilian vehicles instead. So we have an economic system, situation which is different from the one that they expected themselves to be in. There's a military situation which is different from the one they expected to be in because they didn't expect that the war would continue in this kind of way. And, of course, on top of that, there's increasing concerns about the economic damage to the West, especially to Europe. Um, there was another article in the Financial Times which straightforwardly admitted that there is no substitute. Europe does not have any alternative to Russian gas. And, you know, all that we've been hearing about liquefied natural gas, about more gas from Algeria and more gas from Norway and more gas from Azerbaijan has no reality behind it. So there's, this article was talking quite straightforwardly about the fact that, you know, big industrial factories in Germany will have to shut in the winter in order to make sure that uh, um, German Households continue to be fed with energy if things continue as they are, which they won't, by the way. But anyway, all of this is going on. So they are now in a very difficult position. So what do they do? They are now talking about sending heavy weapons to Ukraine, something which they previously said they wouldn't do. They've sent up to now anti-tank weapons and anti-aircraft weapons. But now they're for the first time talking about sending infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, those sort of things. The trouble is, they've been doing this with Ukraine, it turns out, for years. Now, this is something I hadn't appreciated, but it seems that steadily over the last eight years, all the Ukrainian losses that, were, that took place in 2014 have been made up with arms deliveries from Eastern Europe. And, uh, of course, there have been more stepped-up arms deliveries from Eastern Europe since the end, uh, since the start of this particular war. So the East European states are saying we've run on, we're running out. We don't, have, we don't have enough tanks. We don't have infantry fighting vehicles and anything like the numbers that, we, that are needed to make up the difference. So now the Western powers are becoming confronted with a dilemma, which I don't think they ever wanted to be in, which is, do they let the situation play out, which would be politically disastrous for them, or do they find some kind of way of escalating by sending Western heavy weapons to Ukraine? So we now have this furious row in Germany about whether or not to send to Ukraine, these 100 old Marder infantry fighting vehicles. The Greens, who are massively invested now politically in supporting Ukraine. I mean, if, if this doesn't turn out well for the Greens, then there's a very good chance we will never see the Greens in government in Germany ever again. So the Greens want to send these weapons. Scholz at the moment is extremely unhappy about doing so. I suspect he's been told increasingly by people within the SPD and uh, uh, probably the Free Democrats and other people within the German establishment, you've taken leave of your senses. But of course, he's weak. He's always backed down whenever he's faced with Baerbock and, Baerbock and Habeck. He's always gone along with whatever demands they've made. 
And, of course, the real risk is that we are going to start to see heavy weapons, Western heavy weapons, being sent to Ukraine. The problem is, yet again, and I go back to what the Financial Times was saying, there aren't that many of them. The stocks have been heavily run down since the end of the Cold War. So the other thing is you can send German infantry fighting vehicles and British infantry fighting vehicles, but the risk you run is that they're going to be sent in penny packets, that the Russians control the skies over Ukraine. They have these enormously powerful hypersonic missiles. They can destroy them on the ground. So that then leads you, if you're going to go on escalating, to the next possibility. And then we start to get talk about, we may end up in a few weeks' time hearing more about no-fly zones, those kind of things. But that's the ladder of escalation we're on. The economic war is going badly. The military battle in Donbass is going badly. So we can't face the humiliation of complete defeat, especially by the autumn-winter period. So do we send Western weapons to Ukraine? And if we do, where do we stop? Or do we stop? Do we just go on escalating? until we end up in a hot war with the Russians. And I'm afraid we're in a very dangerous situation now because it's clear to me that there are people in the United States who rather than face that kind of scenario of seeing everything fail, would go for a hot war with the Russians. And we see the people like Baerbock and Habeck and others find themselves in the same position in Germany. Yeah, the... Um the statement that you made about autumn and winter, I think, is the key. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking and a lot of people may be frustrated with is what exactly are the timelines and what exactly is the goal? Because no one really knows. And, you know, I understand the Russian military and the Kremlin is, has to keep things quiet and keep it played close to their chest. But my sense is that the longer this war goes – the more of a chance you're going to have for no-fly zones to get implemented and, and for the collective West to reach that top level of uh, escalation. Or, well, the top level would be obviously a hot war and, God forbid, nuclear. But to get to that no-fly zone level of that escalator, the longer this drags out. And I hear autumn and winter, and I understand that the Russians may be prepared to fight this war till the autumn or winter. And even the Russian public has said as much in uh, the latest polls. But uh, that allowing that much time to, to pass in order to achieve this very interesting and, and general goal of demilitarization and denazification means that uh, we are running a very, very likely risk that we're going to get to, uh, to this escalator and, and and then i listen to what you're saying with with bringing in heavy weapons and everyone is always asking well how do they get them in how are they through poland does russia is russia just letting them come in why aren't they doing anything in the west why aren't they using their 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 technology their hypersonic missiles in order to prevent these weapons for, from coming in or sending a message to the collective yeah. west Don't i think you dare yeah. I, I, I'm getting reports that the Russians are now finally starting to, to take out roads and railway uh, lines yes. from yes. west to, yes. to east. But yes. there's just yes. so many questions. 
the big concern is as this drags on, you know, you run these risks. Listen to this quote from Macron. Quote, the conflict, unfortunately, will not end soon. I think we will see a very difficult situation in Donbass in the coming days and weeks. This is exactly what Newland and Sullivan and, uh, and the neocons in, in D.C. want. They want a war that will drag on till the autumn or the winter. And it seems like, I mean, I don't know, but is this what Putin and the, uh, the Russian generals are also looking at? And it, it seems like they may be playing into their hands, the neocons' hands. I'm, well, I'm not sure. We, we don't I, know, I actually, but I'm just speculating. Yeah. I actually interpreted Macron's words differently. In fact, I, 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 I interpreted Macron's words. Ukraine to be defeated in Donbass. When he says that we're going to be in a difficult situation in the next few weeks in Donbass, I think what he means by very difficult situation is that he's getting intelligence that the war in uh, Donbass is going badly for Ukraine. That, that's how I see it. Um, now, having that you're absolutely right. the longer this goes on the greater the risk of escalation now the problem is not that this is what the, the neocons want it's not what the neocons originally wanted they thought in february that they would achieve their what they wanted through shock and awe and again i want to stress i'm not saying this off the top of my head it's what i've been reading in places like the Financial Times. So, the problem is with the neocons is that these people have, have no, no reverse gear. They will escalate. Now, I don't know whether the Russians themselves understand this. I don't know to what extent the Russians understand that, yes, the longer the war goes on, the more it gets ground down, the more it's dismantled piece by piece. The more the Ukrainian army is dismantled piece by piece, the stronger e Russia economically becomes. All of those things are true. From a Russian perspective, doing that invites terrible dangers because, of course, they will never accept the kind of defeat that you're preparing for them. And, of course, they have the media behind them. I mean, if you look at the media in the West, I mean, they're absolutely, especially in the United States and in Germany, the, even to, to a lesser extent, in fact, in Britain. But, I mean, you know, they, they exist in Britain, too. But the, the media are taking the most extreme positions. The Brit the, and, of course, they support escalation, which is what the neocons are looking for. So... I'm afraid that if there is a Ukrainian military disaster over the next few weeks in Donbass, which is now looking certain, and if the economic, the bad economic news in the West increases, which is inevitable, then I'm afraid the danger is that these people will say, look, we've got to end this, we've got to find some reason to end this, uh, and we've got some way to, to end this and to achieve victory. And the way we do that is we impose a no-fly zone or, or something of that nature. So at that point, at that point, I'm afraid we are in a, a situation which is unprecedented. We've never been in since the end of the Second World War. It's not at all clear what the Pentagon would do if it was 
confronted with those kind of demands. My impression is that they're pushing back very hard against them, but would they, would they really resist an instruction from the president if they got it? I mean, I, you know, that would be an extraordinary situation. And then we are in an incredibly dangerous position. So, I, I, you know, we are, we are, and I don't know to what extent this is understood in Moscow. I, I'm not sure. I think there are some people in Moscow who understand it. I think Lavrov, who has to negotiate with these people all the time, understands that. I think Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, understands that. I'm afraid there are some people around Putin who probably don't understand it. The, he's, he's press spokesman. But Peskov, who we were talking about before, he's still trying to sound reasonable. He's still trying to say, well, you know, we've got all these very measured and moderate projects in Ukraine. Let's see whether we can find some satisfactory compromise, which will enable us to get back together again. I, I mean, he, it seems to me, doesn't understand it. And the big question is, does Putin? Well, yeah, I mean... Someone like Peskov is definitely uh, looking to for some sort of rapprochement with uh, with Europe, which is absolutely crazy to to think that he still believes there's something to be to be saved in that relationship. But the statements that he's been making, especially to the media in the UK, definitely signal that. Um, someone like like Lavrov is a much much more of a realist, and I think Lavrov sees the situation for what it is, and uh, I think he is concerned. With, with this, and my question to you is: um, I, I think this is going to sound. I think, I think, I think so. Are the military, by the way? I think yes. Military are probably pushing at the bit, and of course, you mentioned the fact that they've been escalating their missile strikes. I mean, they made that demonstration with their hypersonic missiles. They attacked that base near Lviv a couple of weeks ago and killed all those mercenaries. They're probably signaling that they're able to intercept. In fact, they, they've said as much, that they can, in fact, intercept these armed supplies. And I think probably that's where, of course, the counter-pressures would come within Moscow, that they would be saying that we just can't allow the situation to continue in this way. We've got to take a firm stand. Yeah. Uh, what I'm going to say now is is maybe maybe controversial, but um, let me see how I can phrase it here. Uh, we know what the media is, the media, how the media has painted Putin as, as the next H-I-T-L-E-R, and he's authoritarian and dictator, but everyone that watches this this channel, and, and me and you know that, that, that Putin actually has a much different reputation inside of Russia. He's actually seen much more as, as a moderate figure. Um, I'm not saying he's liberal, but he's definitely seen as someone more in the center and more moderate maybe over the years he's he's gotten a little more uh stiffer let's say over the years but he's still seen as someone who's very much on the moderate side of things do you believe that uh knowing the original plan was to go in soft to use maneuver warfare like scott ritter said but to go in to try and, and capture Ukraine without having um, casualties and infrastructure, casual, and infrastructure damage. The, the military around Putin is starting to say, look, given the situation right now with regards to the neocons and the escalation that they want and the all-out war that they want, and the all-out war that the is, uh, is pushing for, and they, they are pushing for all-out war. 
we need to become a lot harder. We need to descend much, especially with regards to the west of Ukraine, where we're seeing a, a planned escalation that is taking place. That, that's how it seems to me that the west is where the escalation is going to be uh, with regards to, to heavy weaponry and things like this. Do you think Putin is just too soft? And do you think if he doesn't harden up the, the pace of things, that the public in Russia will start to say Putin is just not hard enough or strong enough. It sounds weird for to say it, given the audience that we're speaking to, a, a, say, say a Western type of audience, they're going to probably hear this and they're going to say Alex has gone crazy. But there, there is that talk inside of Russia where they feel that Putin is not as strong with regards to these things as other people in in Russia, other leaders in Russia would be. I mean, do you understand how I'm trying to frame this? I understand. We're still trying to be sensitive to the war, to human life. I mean, to all these things. It's a sensitive situation. But you are trying to talk about this in a a constructive and and realistic way as well as we analyze the situation. You are are absolutely right about this. And can I just say, uh, and I think this is one of the great problems. I think people do do not understand because, of course, the way in which Putin has become the overwhelming focus of media commentary in the West. Everything is supposed to revolve around him. I think that this has created enormous misunderstandings about the nature of Russian politics and of Russian society. If you spend any time, as I do, going onto the Russian, so you know, onto the Russian media, following the Russian media, and by the way, I, I can only partially access Russian social media, but I understand it's even more vigorous. What you will find, and this goes back, way back, way, way back, is that Putin in Russia, by most of Russian society, is seen as a moderate with respect to the West. I I mean, you remember how for a long, long time he used to refer to Western countries as our partners. It's difficult to convey to the Westerners how much that grated with Russians. I mean, it really did. I mean, you know, it, 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 it really annoyed people. If there's ever going to be a challenge to Putin, it's not going to come from the liberals who are a discredited and isolated and marginal force within Russia. It is going to come from that patriotic wing of Russian society, not wing, but, you know, that large force within the Russian society, which extends all the way from the Communist Party on the left, which is not like the Communist Party of the old days, all the way to people who we would, uh, you know, I would unhesitatingly describe as right. Uh, you know. All right, let's talk about that for, for a second. And there's a, there's a lot of different metaphors you can use for the Ukraine Russia situation, and uh, and we, we all use slightly different ones. Puppet regimes and and that type of thing are all used on a regular basis. Uh, lots of lots of references to Hitler, uh, even though they spell it out on the Durand because they don't want to get banned from YouTube. They still refer to NAZIs and and HITLER. And uh, it seems like YouTube's censoring even more because they're, they're very much spelling things out, you know, in a way to avoid the algorithms um, 
So there, there must be a there must be a set of rules in place on YouTube where they they're not allowed to talk about certain things. I know they're not they know they're not not allowed to talk about Ukrainian war crimes, but they can talk about Russian war crimes. I think uh, something like that. That's the way that they get around it by spelling things out or avoiding talking about particular places. But there's definitely something going on in terms of censorship, and it's obvious to me that it's it's basically all propaganda on all sides um, there's a, there's a, I'll play that from, from Odyssey and there's a channel on Odyssey called South Front as well so I'll, which is more of a kind of military military updates kind of channel uh, I think it comes from donate but it's basically coming from Russian sources so I find it quite useful to update myself from this this one as well it's only five minutes it'll be on an electronic voice so it's a little bit annoying but uh, we'll see if we can get a couple of these in as well this is Donbass Front Lines from yesterday and then there's another one to play which is a, a kind of a, another update here we go After the withdrawal of Russian forces from the Kiev and Chernihiv regions, pressure on the armed forces of Ukraine and the Donbass front lines increased. While the shelling on Ukrainian military targets around Ukraine continues on a daily basis, the joint DPR, LPR and Russian forces are claiming small victories on the front lines. DPR units with support of Russian forces are advancing and securing their rest to the east of the town of Mariinka, where fears continues. On April 6th, the Russian Ministry of Defense confirmed that DPR units finished the mop-up operation in the village of Sladkoye. The 11th Regiment of the DPR broke through fierce resistance of the AFU and took control over the village. Meanwhile, units of the Russian army entered the village of Novomikhailovka to the south of the town of Mariinka. Positional battles continue to the north of Adivka. After DPR forces took control over the village of Novobakhmutovka, they are strengthening their positions there. Several streets are still under the AFU control. Ukrainian soldiers attempted a counterattack on the village of Vernetsteretskoye with six tanks with infantry but were repelled. Advance of DPR forces at the Adivka-Konstantinovka highway is expected. One of the main strongholds of the AFU in the region is the town of Novogorodskoye to the west of Golovka. After years of war, Ukrainian forces have heavily fortified the area. Fierce clashes reach some streets of the town, but the DPR advance is slowed down by the AFU advantage in forces. The DPR assault was carried out with the air support of the Russian aerospace forces. The AFU are amassing in the Krematorsk, Artemovsk, or Bakhmut, Druskovka area, while Russian forces are attempting to surround the AFU grouping from the north. The main hotspot on the Donbass front lines is the region of Izium. 
Amid fierce resistance by the AFU, Russian forces are slowly advancing to the south and southeast of Kamenka in the direction of Pavenkovo and Slavyansk. The villages of Brashkovka and Sukaya Kamenka are now under Russian control. In their turn, LPR forces are slowly advancing on the streets of the town of Popusnea. In the Severodonetsk Vistichansk area, LPR troops reach the outskirts of Severodonetsk city. Clashes continue in the eastern regions of Rubusnoe, where the AFU blew up a tank with toxic substances at the Zarya chemical plant. The Kharkiv and Sumi front lines remain without significant changes. A large offensive of Russian forces is expected in the region after more Russian troops are transferred from the Kiev region to the eastern front lines. The Kiev officials are preparing to battle by their traditional means, sharing lies. The notorious advisor to the officer president of Ukraine, Alexei Rostovich, has recently claimed that of the 648 soldiers of the Russian 200 Motorized Rifle Brigade, only three survived on the Kharkov outskirts. In response, servicemen of the brigade responded with a video showing them carrying out combat missions a few kilometers from the city. Despite unconfirmed reports of the Mikulev officials, no changes in the border of the Mikulev and Kherson regions are, are confirmed. The village of Snegarevka and the outskirts of Alexandrovka are under Russian control. The AFU forces are attempting to attack from the Nikopol direction in the area of Novorodsovka. The mop-up operations in the city of Mariupol continue. According to the official representative of the DPR People's Militia, about 3,000 soldiers of the armed forces of Ukraine, including nationalist regiments, may currently be besieged in Mariupol. The main battles in the central part of the city are over. Fighting has moved to the port of the city and to the territory of the heavily fortified industrial area of the Azovstal plant. The armed forces of the Russian Federation continue to strike at the military infrastructure of Ukraine. On April 6, high-precision ground-based missiles destroyed the command post of Ukraine's 56th separate motorized infantry brigade near Novogrodovka, as well as a nationalist base in Grodovka in the Donetsk region. High-precision air-based missiles destroyed a fuel depot near Chugliev in the Kharkov region from where fuel was supplied to Ukrainian troops. In addition, a large concentration of foreign-made weapons and military equipment supplied to the Ukrainian armed forces was destroyed in the evening at the Lozovea railway station in Kharkov region. Okay, there's one more of those I can play. We've got time for it. This is from just 22 hours ago. Uh, it's an update on Mariupol. I'm not claiming to understand uh, all the military stuff, but I do like to try and attempt to understand it if I can, and it might make sense to somebody. So uh, it all, I also want to get it in the archive, just because it's a, an appropriate thing to play at this point. Here we go. This is from South Front again on Odyssey.
mop-up operations are still ongoing in the city of Mariupol. The Russian military and the armed forces of the Donetsk People's Republic, DPR, continue to corner the remaining troops of the armed forces of Ukraine, AFU, and the Azov nationalists in the key port city. As of April 7th, out of 14,000 soldiers of the AFU, including servicemen of the Azov Regiment, besieged in Mariupol a month ago, around 3,000 burst. The center city, almost all administrative buildings, have come under the control of Russian and DPR troops. AFU units and Azov fighters are defunded at the Azov stall, the Ilvich plant, and the seaport area. Assaults of the DPR's People's Militia and the Armed Forces of Russia, including Chechen soldiers of the regiment named after the hero of Russia, Akhmat Haji Kadyrov, have already entered the territory of Azovstal. The assault on the plant began from the northern direction under close artillery fire and airstrikes from the Russian Aerospace Forces, but the advanced fierce resistance from Azov fighters. The artillery of the Russian military and the DPR pounded the remnants of the AFU and Azov in the port of Mariupol. According to the DPR, the besieged nationalists burned a number of ships in the port, including the Donbass command ship of the Ukrainian Navy. According to unconfirmed reports by Russian military commanders on the ground and several sources, NATO officers, including high-ranking commanders of the U.S. and European armies, may be blocked in Mariupol. The reports about NATO commanders taking shelter with Azov militants in Mariupol may explain why NATO member states, especially France and Turkey, insist on carrying out a humanitarian mission in Mariupol, but only with the participation of their military. On other fronts in the Donbass, heavy fighting continues. The Russian military and the armed forces of the DPR and the Lugansk People's Republic, LPR, continue to push forward in the region of Izium, despite fierce resistance from the AAU, nationalist units, and foreign mercenaries. Joint forces are moving towards Barbenklovo and Slavyansk. At the same time, joint Russian DPR forces continue to advance west of Donetsk City. The village of Sladkoe came under their control on April 7th. Developing the offensive of the Russian armed forces completely blockaded the village of Novo Mikhailova and began to mop up the nationalists inside. In pursuit of the retreating units of the 54th Mechanized Forces, the Russians have also located the city of the Ubar and are now fighting against outsiders. Meanwhile, the Russian military continues in its outstrikes on military targets in different parts of Nagari. On April 7th, Russian air defense systems shut down two Ukrainian military helicopters in the air, a Mi-8 and Mi-24, near the city of Kirshen. Also destroyed were six drones near Novoselovka 2, Chernovaya, Novogradovka, Iloyask, Chartysk, and three other drones, including two Baraktar 2B2s over the settlements of Kirvoy Rog and Trudovo. 
According to the most recent briefing by the Russian Ministry of Defense, 125 Ukrainian warplanes, 95 helicopters, 416 unmanned aerial vehicles, 227 anti-aircraft missile systems, 2,003 tanks and other armored combat vehicles, 220 multiple launch rocket systems, 869 field artillery and mortars, as well as 1,902 units of special military vehicles have been destroyed since the beginning of the Russian special military operation. The city of Mariupol will likely remain the hottest front for the next few days. The Russian military and the armed forces of the DPR and LPR will not likely develop their offensive on other fronts in the Donbass before Mariupol is fully secured. All right, so that again is from South Front. And uh, it's it's funded by donations, but I think they must be getting they're getting their information from the Russians as much as anywhere else, because uh, there's a lot of emphasis on Russian material. And uh, yeah, you think of it all like it's a like it's a psychological um, discussion. It's a drama triangle. There's a rescuer. There's a victim. And there's a persecutor, but nobody knows who any of those people are. Because from one point of view, it looks like Russia's the persecutor. From another point of view, it looks like Ukraine's the victim. From another point of view, it looks like uh, NATO is the rescuer. But then Russia's rescuing the Russian-speaking people in the east of Ukraine. So they're the rescuer as well. And... Victims all over the place, victims everywhere. Everybody feels like a victim in this one. So everybody's a victim, everybody's a rescuer, and everybody's a perpetrator. So, yeah, just let's move it on. I'll see you next week, alright? That's uh, a bit everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? 
Murder mystery. Real natural law. You enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's Hyper Thinking. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth 